From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We start with Eyes on Germany by way of Ukraine. As the Ukraine contact group meeting convenes in Germany with key international allies, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announcing 31 Abrams tanks will arrive in Germany next month, with roughly 250 Ukrainian troops expected to begin training on these tanks shortly thereafter. But no fighter jets, knowing they still loom large on the wish list for Ukraine, as we discussed yesterday on Balance of Power on Bloomberg TV with Yuri Sak, who advises Ukraine's defense minister. Uh, there are still certain things on our uh, wish list, if you like, which we uh, have not received and we hope to receive. Uh, they include, for example, long-range missiles. Uh, they include uh, fighter jets, F-16s. Uh, and, uh, of course, we need more uh, air defense systems. But not so much by Lloyd Austin when asked by a reporter if the U.S. will consider sending the F-16s to Ukraine in the footsteps uh, of, of fellow allies Poland and Slovakia. For now, we're focused on the ground. Right now, what, uh, what we all believe is what Ukraine needs most urgently is ground-based air defense capability. That is what has enabled them to prevent the Russian air forces from having a meaning, meaningful impact in this fight. This is where we begin the conversation with Ward Carroll. Delighted to say he's back with us. Military analyst, of course, former naval aviator who flew in F-14 jets, helping to reinforce and enforce the no-fly zone over Iraq. Of course, the namesake of the Ward Carroll YouTube channel. Commander, it's great to have you back. Welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. We've spoken very specifically in the past about the weapon systems that would work best in Ukraine as they attempt to close the skies, to use President Zelensky's term, ahead of this spring offensive that could be beginning as we speak. Are they correct that F-16s would be a game changer? I don't have to be a game changer. It's, it's sort of an additive capability um, I think Secretary Austin is is at once right and a little bit wrong. The focus is on the ground war. I'm happy to hear that they're getting the Abrams tanks almost eight months ahead of when the original schedule was getting them to Ukraine. Um, that That's a game changer, potentially. Hmm. So when we talk about the air threat and the air war, we got to think holistically. It's not so much just dogfighting. Can an F-16B to MiG-29 or an SU-25. Hmm. Um, it's more, do you have uh, suppression of enemy air defense, jamming capability that will shut down the air defenses so that these F-16s won't just troll into a SAM ring and get shot down on the first sortie, which is the fear of a lot of pundits hmm. and people who understand uh, the nature of the air war there. So certainly, whatever amount of F-16s we're talking about, 
they'll help. That's a great airplane. I've flown the Navy aggressor variant of it. It's a, it's an airplane that was ahead of its time. Um, it's still very uh, very lethal. I know in the teaser you were talking about other European nations that have given airplanes. Mm-hmm. So Slovakia gave four MiG-29s, which were MiG-29As that they didn't want. So that that's not an amazing game-changer capability. It looks great on paper, but we need to think this through instead of just sort of throwing equipment and munitions at them just because it you know looks good on a spreadsheet or it sounds good uh, you know when we're at uh, NATO headquarters or whatever. Yeah. So yes, they need airplanes, they do, but we need to think more broadly about the defense in depth capability that's going to win this war. Yuri Sock made the point, and he's here in Washington, not Germany, making the ask directly of the Defense Department and hoping to come home with something to show for it, that F-16s would be much more effective than, for instance, the MiG-29s that you mentioned, those Russian-made MiGs, because uh, they're more advanced, he says, and just having them would be a deterrent, that when Russia sees an F-16 take off from Ukraine, that they stand down. Is that realistic? No, that's not realistic. Um, I, I think... And again, when you say F-16, there's a number of different models. So the CJ model has harm missiles, the anti-radiation missiles, that if you, if you put a CJ with a straight-stick fighter F-16, now you have the robust presentation that I'm talking about. One of these guys can shut down the radar or keep it from illuminating in fear of getting hit by a harm. And the other one can patrol, drop bombs, look for Russian airplanes, whatever. So, again, we got to think this through. Mm-hmm. What models are we giving them and in what numbers? Uh, you know, so I'm just afraid that it's too, too a la carte uh, in terms of the ask from time to time. I understand. Uh, and there's been reluctance here in the U.S. The Pentagon, the White House would tell you that this would have an additional escalatory effect, that Russia sees us providing fighter jets and, and could react on its own. Or to your point, you get an F-16 from the U.S., that's shot down, uh, we get in a direct conflict potentially with Russia. Do you see that kind of creep coming from a gift like that? We're already past creep. You know, hmm. I, I think these discussions about escalatory are from a year ago. You know, we're, we're all in. And so I think what this administration has chosen to do, obviously all of Congress doesn't agree, but what this administration has chosen to do is support Ukraine in terms of repelling the invaders. And I entreat the listeners to go to the Institute for the Study of War and look at their interactive map, because that map has not changed for the last nine months. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we think this is the status quo, then Russia wins. They carved out the Donbass, and they almost have a land bridge to Odessa, a very important seaport on the Black Sea. What President Zelensky wants to do is put them, is push that all the red you see or pink you see on that map, make it blue, including uh, Crimea. And so that that's a that's a bold, uh, you know, uh, strategy. But that's where the Ukrainians are, you know, and I think the Western world uh, should take a long look at uh, how sound that is with respect to, you know, deterring Putin from further aggression uh, and, you know, stabilizing the world order. Um, so, again, I think we're, we're just talking about what jet should they get? I've had a number of yeah. episodes that talking about should they get Swedish jet jets, should they get you know, uh, MiGs, should they get F-16s? That's sort of myopic. That's looking at the problem through a soda straw, as we say. The problem is broader. It's great to talk to you, Ward. Thanks for your insights. Unique, as ever, insights from Ward Carroll. He's an expert, of course. 
He flew in F-14 Tomcats for 15 years after graduating from the Naval Academy, named Naval Institute Press Author of the Year for his novel Punk's War, and he referred to the Ward Carroll YouTube channel. I suggest you check it out if you're interested in topics like this. And we had another voice here in Kelly Greco, senior fellow at the Stimson Center, with an eye on this request. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us here. I, I believe that you would agree with Ward that the F-16s uh, might be more than Ukraine needs. Maybe you can frame this in a different sense. What would be your answer to Yuri Sock's request? Well, first, thank you for having me. I, I would frame it a little differently in the sense of, I think it's about strategy. And if we're thinking about what, I do think the air war is, is incredibly important to this war and particularly Ukraine's ability to defend against the Russians. But their real success has been in denying air superiority to a much larger and more advanced Russian air force so that the Russians are not able to employ those aircraft on the battlefield in a very effective way. And the key thing then for the United States is to support Ukraine and being able to continue with this successful strategy. Mm -hmm. So essentially, they've used ground-based air defenses. They're mobile, they're distributed to be able to make the airspace so threatening to Russian aircraft. We've seen lots of them shot down, but the Russians are essentially not operating very often over Ukrainian airspace. I don't, I think that switching to the F-16 is an attempt almost to make the Ukrainian Air Force into the American Air Force. Hmm. But Ukraine faces a very different problem set. They are at a quantitative and qualitative disadvantage against the Russians. And so rather than fighting the Russians symmetrically with F-16s, it's a far more effective and smarter approach to continue with an asymmetric strategy that's been successful so far. That's fascinating. Uh, I want you to go back to our interview uh, yesterday, Kelly, with Yuri Sok, who is an advisor to Ukraine's defense minister, making the case for us on Balance of Power TV on Bloomberg. Air supremacy and air dominance are critical for any successful military operations. And without it, without it, there is a radical risk to the success of these operations. And of course, there is the risk of more loss of life. For us, for the Ukrainian army, we value the life of our soldiers, right? We don't treat them as cannon fodder. We want to be successful in liberating our lands. And we know that, you know, fighter jets, F-16s, there are more than 4,000 of those around the world. And we just need 40. Just need 40, Kelly, but you think it's the wrong idea. Yes, I think it's fundamentally the wrong idea, and I think it would be a major strategic mistake, actually, on the part of Ukraine. I would just one of the things I think is interesting that he commented on sort of the United States and its own doctrine. And I would just say two things about that. Mm -hmm. One is that Ukraine itself has provided the best evidence that air superiority is not required for military success on the ground. What is required, what is an essential, is the ability to deny air superiority to your adversary. And if you'll notice, that's exactly what Secretary Austin is emphasizing yes. with the discussion about air defense. So I think, you know, we even saw Ukraine on the counteroffensive last fall without air superiority. And that was in part enabled by that denial of air superiority to Russia. And the second thing I would just say is that, you know, you know, the United States has its own biases um, towards offensive air operations. Hmm. Uh, and we see that in United States doctrine. I actually think there's a broader lesson here for the United States as well from the Ukraine war and other wars of recent times about how mobile ground-based air defenses are really increasing the advantage of defense relative to offense in air operations. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I understand his desire to advocate for the F-16, 
But I actually think the evidence on the ground and in the air in Ukraine actually supports uh, sending more air defenses, not F-16s. So why aren't we just piling Patriot missile systems and HIMARS into Ukraine? I know that we're already sending some, but they say they still need a lot more. Yes. I mean, one answer is I wish we could. You know, this is partly that we're dealing with the last 30 years that the United States, other Western countries were so dominant in the airspace that we neglected our air defenses. And we don't have as much as we would like now on offer to Ukraine. That said, I do think there are some options here. You know, one recently there's been discussion about using the Sea Sparrow to try to um, replace some of the missiles for um, the boot launchers that Ukraine has. Mm-hmm. There's also, I think, you know, there's going to maybe be increasing pressure perhaps on Israel and other countries to perhaps offer some air defenses. You know, every air defense that we can get to Ukraine is going to really matter now, particularly those longer range. And I think the other piece of it is about strategy, because the reality is there are not enough air defenses probably in the world right now to create the kind of impenetrable air defense bubble we would love to have in Ukraine. And so it's going to be about strategy and Ukraine making some really tough choices uh, that are forced upon them by the war between when do they engage targets coming in uh, from Russian aircraft and and missiles and and drones using up some of their, their missile capability and these launchers? And when do they decide the priority needs to be this persistent, our ability to persistently threaten Russian aircraft. And so we may actually have to take some losses, accept some losses in order to preserve our missile stocks. And that's, I will recognize that is a horrible choice to have to make, particularly given the Russians target Ukrainian you know, cities and their infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, but this is an unfortunate reality of this war. Yeah, they're shooting at apartment buildings. Um Brutal. What do we need to be doing here then with our own our own security in mind, Kelly? When does the restocking begin? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, there's a lot of discussion now about ramping up production for these things. And that's that's being discussed. I think there's you know, that's one issue is is the increasing production and certainly increasing missile stocks in particular for air defenses, for, you know, all sorts of systems. The other piece, though, I think we need to also look at is whether we have the right kinds of air defense systems moving forward as well, um, including the Patriot system. You know, in Ukraine, they've been really successful because they're so nimble at moving their air defense systems so quickly. You know, they fire and then they turn off the radars and they move. They can move that system in about 10, 15 minutes after firing. Mm-hmm. You look at the Patriot system, it takes more closer to an hour to be able to do that. And so that might have worked in, you know, the last 30 years in, um, you know, an environment that wasn't quite as contested. But moving forward, I think we need to really start looking at our own air defenses, and including if we have the right systems. Kelly Grieco, the panel's next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast 
catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. As we assemble the panel, time to hear from Rick and Jeannie on this with the Ukraine Defense Contact Group meeting in Germany and questions about what we should be providing and some answers as to what we are providing. Something we just discussed with Ward Carroll and Kelly Grieco. The tanks are on the way. Pretty remarkable. As the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announces, 31 Abrams M1A1 tanks will arrive next month in Germany. They were not expected to arrive until months after that. General Mark Milley, of course, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, speaking to the level of training that will accompany this equipment. There's about 2,500 Ukrainian soldiers conducting training right now in Germany. Another 8,800, almost 9,000, have completed training and have returned to Ukraine. And there are 65 Ukrainians that completed training on Patriot missile systems just recently. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us here for some analysis on this. Rick, are we having the right conversation? Because it feels a little bit like a rerun here. Ukraine asks for jets. We send something else. Uh, But in this case, as we heard from both of our last guests, these M1 tanks might actually make a difference despite doubts to that effect a couple of months ago. Yeah, no question. This narrative continues to shift, and the only people who seem to get it right are the Ukrainians. I mean, they <laughs> they actually ask for all these things, and and they hope they get them all when they ask for them. And and of course, the Biden administration's um, a policy has been to sort of you know hand out this stuff in in various tranches. And and the debate around the tanks was really interesting because you know basically our allies forced us into committing to these tanks before they would commit their tanks. And we kept telling everybody who would listen, oh, you know, they're not going to be able to figure out how to drive an Abrams tank. Right. It's so sophisticated and it's so inefficient. <laughs> you know, and now it's like, hey, hurry those things up because we got a, you know, spring offensive. And, you know, next thing you know, what was supposed to take a year, you know, has already started to arrive a few months later. So uh, it, it's so hard to sort of see through the smoke of war here and and try to understand what this administration's policy is but i feel like it's groundhog day you know we hear yes. this request from the ukrainians and we say no and then we give them to them uh and <laughs> and the longest holdout is the discussion you just had around f-16s mm-hmm. and um and and we'll see i mean my my bet is a couple months from now we're going to see a few f-16s flying over the ukraine airspace that would be the trend that would continue the trend genie you say no for six months then you say maybe then all of a sudden they show up earlier than we thought and we're training ukrainian pilots is that how this one ends it is you know it's almost like a big tease and to rick's point we've seen it over and over and over again and i think you're uh, in your conversation with with ward carroll you noted that the argument has been about you know we don't want to escalate yeah. well the reality is he said we We're all are in. all in we need to get over that that's about a year old at this point but it's what we keep hearing and you know i can't help but think that the administration is concerned because while support in the U.S. remains fairly high, like 69, 70 percent of Americans support, there are signs that that is diminishing. And we've got a president set to potentially announce he is going to run for the presidency again next week. And so I think that they may be looking at these polls and thinking we got to slow walk this. And that's what we are seeing. But the reality is, if they don't give Ukraine what it needs to make these moves this spring, we may be sitting here next year in the middle of a campaign year having the same discussion. And I that's think it's right. going to be harder to have at that point. You know, it's going to be harder. And that, you know, to the, to, to the point of Yuri Sock, who 
spoke to us yesterday advising the Ukrainian defense minister. His point was, why are we waiting? Why don't we throw everything at this now? Why waste time? Why give Russia the opportunity to build up their uh, capabilities? Why not end it soon, right? Yeah. Our thinking, our thinking is we need to change our approach from we will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes to let's finish it as soon as possible because every day results in the death of our people mm-hmm. and the death of our soldiers on the battlefield. Why procrastinate? I know there's a bit of nuance there, Rick, but how important is that shifting posture to, hey, we're here for as long as you need us to, no, let's get this done now. Yeah, look, I mean, I I think the first thing he's got to do, and I totally agree with his approach on this, is convince the Biden administration that they can actually win this fight. I mean, when you look at the approach we've taken since day one, we've been sort of, you know, basically cheerleaders for the Russian outcome, right? We keep saying, oh, well, you know, they were going to be in Kiev in the first week. Well, that didn't turn out well. You know, it's going to be really tough to get, a, you know, Russians out of there. Uh, you know, they're going to take advantage of the, the winter. Well, you know, the Russians actually moved ahead in the winter. And, and now it's, it's like there's no sensibility around the idea that the, that the Ukrainians can actually win this war. And, of course, these leaked documents that everybody's been talking about for the last week, you know, kind of reinforces that. And so at the end of the day, this administration has got to decide, do they want to win or do they want a stalemate? And from what I can tell, they've kind of been playing into a stalemate. And whether you call that escalation or de-escalation, I don't care. Uh, uh, I'm I'm with Yuri. I think we ought to to get as much equipment and training into that country as we can to try and, you know, ensure that the – so that there's – the integrity of Ukraine is 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 maintained, which is how we yeah. feel about every country. Just so we understand, though, Rick, when you say the administration, do you include the Pentagon? Sure. Look, at the end of the day, the Pentagon doesn't get to make these decisions. They make yeah. recommendations in the White House. Tells but you them hear them. very convincing arguments from Mark Milley and Lloyd Austin. And you have to think that that they're speaking honestly, right? Well, I think the honesty is that they want to be helpful. And then the rubber hits the road in, in meetings that are happening right now with the contact group, you know, where they say, OK, here's what we're willing to give you. And some of that is limitations of, of materials and, and, and training and some of that's limitations of, of money. Uh, but when we talk about these kinds of things where uh, in the areas where there are no limitations uh, and we and we've withheld equipment like attackums because we worry about escalation and the only people who don't seem worried about escalation are the russians and so why don't we play at the same level of of the game Jeannie, you talked about briefly the politics uh that are creeping in on this the debate here in washington about whether we should be spending all this money that's going to get a lot harder uh when we have a presidential campaign underway in earnest we understand joe biden is going to make some sort of video announcement next week and then it's on, and that's going to change the contours of this conversation, arguing, I think, to your point, that this window is closing even faster. It is. It's the election. It is, quite frankly, war fatigue. That happens all the time. It is the expense, you know, $50 billion in 2022, $45 billion 2023, the thousands of lives lost on the Ukrainian side, and the reality for some Americans that while they support Ukraine and they do not support Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they think we have our own domestic problems, inflation, rising prices that need to be addressed. And I think part of this has to do with the Biden administration taking the time to continue to make the case that this is a national security issue for the U.S., that we are not throwing this money at the Ukraine and into this war 
in a way to, you know, somehow just give it away somewhere else, but that this matters to us. And, you know, the president has done that on occasion, but I think at this level of funding, you're going to have to keep making that case. And I'm not sure they've been able to do that in a sustained way. And in their defense, it's hard to do that in a sustained way over years, which is why the fatigue starts to creep in. We've heard that on both the Republican side and the Democratic side. If that starts to close in, it may move into the all-important middle. Meantime, Rick, we're nowhere on a budget, and it looks like it's going to end in a deal eventually between Speaker McCarthy and Joe Biden. Uh, Moderates are getting a little worried about this on both sides of the aisle. What does it mean for defense spending? Well, I think that one of the things that uh, defense hawks, especially in the Senate, are concerned about with this budget uh, strategy that the speaker has is the uh, limitations in the growth of the budget over time and how that will ultimately impact uh, the defense spending, because defense has been growing much more than one percent, you know, on an annualized basis. And so if if everyone agrees to this kind of deal that's on the table today, uh, there's there's real concern that we don't we don't have the kind of growth in the defense line that we need to be able to address the issues in the Ukraine war or be able to ensure the necessary deterrence to China's interests and, and ambitions in the South China Sea. Well, that's it, Jeannie. Should another conflict break out, uh, that's going to change the conversation around defense funding pretty quickly, isn't it? It will. And, you know, that creates a real challenge for Republicans, but quite frankly, everybody in Congress in terms of spending. You know, they have made this case about the deficit and the need to cut spending and the need to trim it. It's very hard to do if you just go after discretionary domestic spending. And so that raises this issue of defense. And we've already heard, you know, we have representatives in Congress looking at China war games and saying, we have a real challenge on our hand. Should China invade Taiwan in the next year, two years? three years, that has an impact on our defense spending. And so all of these conversations are going to come into place. And what are the Republicans Congress doing right now? They're talking about a bill that has absolutely no chance. It may start a conversation, but has absolutely no chance of passing the Senate or being signed. So I support it starting a conversation, but it's an awful lot of time to spend when time is limited as Congress has like 20 days left before the potential June <sighs> D-Day. Yeah, there's only so many plates we can keep spinning in the air at once. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, our signature panel, back with more on 2024. We've got new numbers on the Republican side here. Not looking great for Ron DeSantis. The latest Wall Street Journal poll out and Joe Biden looks like he's going to announce something next week. We'll have that ahead. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden, uh, Biden, I should say, is eyeing a re-election announcement. Easy for me to say as soon as next week. Biden eyeing, yeah, a re-election announcement. It's going to come in the form of a video, according to Bloomberg News. All this as Ron DeSantis turns a 14-point advantage into a 13-point deficit, according to the latest poll from the Wall Street Journal. Let's reassemble the panel for more on this. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, who can get the words out easier than me sometimes as we consider the race here. And Joe Biden, of course, hasn't been you know, very cagey about the fact that he runs again. He, at the Easter egg roll, said as much to Al Roker. This is the president 
and Roker on NBC. I was just wondering, uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, will you be uh, taking part in the Easter egg rolls uh, after planning on after 2024? I plan on <laughs> at least three or four more Easter eggs. At least three at to least four, three four more. more. Maybe, maybe five. Maybe five. Maybe, maybe <laughs> six. So, so uh, are, you, are you saying that uh, you would be uh, taking part in uh, our upcoming election in 2024? Well, I'll be so rolling egg or you know, being the, the, you know, the guy who's Come on, help a, help a brother out. Make no, some news no, for no, me. I, I, well, I, I plan on running out. I'm planning on running out, just not ready to announce it yet. And I guess that's going to come in some form on Tuesday. It's going to be a video, which is, I guess, what you do now. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us. Jeannie, is this smart now? Why not wait a little longer? We still haven't even seen the Republican field come together yet. Why the rush? Yeah, I'm still trying to count. How many years does he think he will serve if he does run and win? <laughs> I'm Five, not, six, not addressing seven. the math there. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think he. we hear he is a bit superstitious. So if he does, and I think there's a big question mark here, really, you know, announced via uh, video on Tuesday, it would be on the anniversary of his winning announcement last time. So, you know, he may have a rabbit in his pocket. I don't know, something like that. Um, but, you know, the time I think there's been mixed feelings on this we've heard from inside his campaign but I think he and and the first lady have not been shy about publicly saying they're running this allows them to do the fundraising they want to do and of course as polls show Donald Trump having an increasingly sizable lead against Ron DeSantis I think he does feel that he has won against uh, Trump in the past and he is the guy to do it again regardless of concerns about his age even from inside his yeah. own party. Rick, you've made the point that there's certainly no rush here for the sitting president to do this. It turns him into a candidate and we start, you know, have to report finances and all the stuff that comes with making things official. Uh, What's behind this? Is he sending a message to other Democrats who are getting itchy? I doubt if it's too much about the other Democrats getting itchy, although I would remind the president that three out of four Americans don't want him to run and 70 percent don't want Trump. So if both of them would just take a step back and listen to America and find another person to endorse in this campaign, we might have something other than a geriatric Olympics in November of 2024. But, yeah, look, I mean, he's he's. He's not under any stress to win his party's nomination, and they will rally around him once he announces. So whether that's on Tuesday or 10 Tuesdays from now, that's pretty much a likelihood that will occur. Um, Why you want to get into this this political cycle when you see your Republican uh, opponents uh, destroying each other? I I mean, I, I think it's a really good time to stay out of the narrative. Uh, but uh, his folks want to get going. They probably need to raise some money. Uh, and uh, and and I guess, you know, if they think they're going to run against Donald Trump, uh, they're 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 probably anxious to to start painting that picture while Republicans are doing the same thing. Uh, and that would be a decidedly negative picture of Donald Trump. To the Republican side, Jeannie, the latest Wall Street Journal poll uh, has Ron DeSantis trailing Donald Trump by 14 points, uh, 13 make that. He was leading him by 14 points. So it's Trump 51 percent to 38 percent among likely Republican primary voters. 
He's just watching the numbers continue to decline here. Does he need to announce before this gets worse, or should he reconsider? See what a good indictment can do for you. Make your poll numbers go up. You look at Real Clear Politics average. A month ago, Trump was ahead 15, 16 points. He's now 29 points ahead of the governor. So I do think time is running a little bit short for Ron DeSantis. He is being hit on all sides in his home state of Florida by his own members of his own uh, legislature down there, members of Congress, former members of Congress. Um, You know, this has been a bad few weeks for the governor, and he is going to really have to figure out a way out of this. And one thing we keep hearing over and over again, he has been slow rolling his criticism of Donald Trump. If he's going to take him on, he is going to have to really take him on, whether he announces or not. And obviously he won't do that until the legislative session ends. He's got to start hitting Trump back on these attacks, or I think he's going to become another Jeb Bush in this regard. Pretty remarkable as we consider uh, the governor's war, if we can call it that, with Disney right now over the whole Reedy Creek district and the back and forth that's upsetting some members of the legislature, the General Assembly in Florida. As uh, Ron DeSantis, Ron and Casey DeSantis, the first lady, uh, described at a sort of quasi campaign stop in South Carolina a couple of days ago, they, they had this sort of prepared routine to talk about their wedding. One day. She comes to me and says, you know, I was talking to my parents and, and they were interested in potentially doing the wedding at yeah. Walt Disney World. Oh, what? I, I remember when this broke in the news, everybody thought it was so scandalous, like DeSantis got married at Disney. Like, yeah, it was great back then. But he had one caveat, though, when I because he was very gracious. He said, you go yeah. do what you want to do. This is your thing. Go for wonderful and we grew up coming from ohio going to disney we had a lot of fun before they went woke obviously um but so they start handing the mic back and forth and apparently rick he didn't want mickey at his wedding but are you kidding me this is the guy who's declared war on disney he actually got married at the park that he's trying to undo it's unexplainable i mean it's just and they were leaning in on this right yes, i mean they it's a great wedding. to make it part of their narrative that we got married there but it wasn't woke then <laughs> and uh I, I i must tell you i honestly don't understand it maybe they think this is kind of cute and it's a way to get to know each other's uh backgrounds uh it, it's it's a little distracting to the overall narrative of what he's trying to do with disney but i but i would say one thing on polling don't believe mm-hmm. any national polls this far out of an election, you know, that are predicting anybody's success or demise. We got a long way to go. And when these folks become candidates and they start spending money in the states that matter, yeah. let's start looking at Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Florida polls. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, we thank you as ever. Our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors uh, with insights on the stories that you care about every day here on Bloomberg Sound On. Yeah, they got married at Disney World, but she says it was the Navy uniform that got her because he looked like Tom Cruise. We'll have to introduce them to Ward Carroll someday and reevaluate. Hey, it's almost Earth Day. We'll take a look at that coming up next on the fastest show in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Earth Day tomorrow. I've got plans. While the day itself and the overall environmental movement are so closely associated now with progressive politics, Democrats, 
Did you know it was a Republican who codified April 22nd as Earth Day? Welcome to the White House on this special occasion. On April 22nd, 1990, America will celebrate Earth Day. Yeah, President George H.W. Bush, 1990, signed a proclamation that day at the White House to make this an annual event. And listen to how different the conversation, the approach, the debate was then. Citizens will be asked to make a personal and collective commitment to the pro- projection of the environment to think globally and act locally. Mm-hmm. And April 22nd also marks the 20th anniversary of the first Earth Day, giving each and every one of us a chance to reflect on the progress made over the past 20 years and set the environmental agenda for the next decade. Uh, We've just started a new year. And 20 years ago this week, on another new year, uh, President Nixon signed landmark environmental legislation, the National Environmental Policy Act, Uh, into law. The historic environmental laws of the 70s followed this step. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, uh, the laws regulating pesticides and toxic substances and hazardous wastes. That was the 20th anniversary indeed of the first Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970. As covered then by Walter Cronkite on CBS News. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival, Earth Day. The gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through, act or die. Act or die, said Walter Cronkite, codified by George H.W. Bush. Things have changed a lot. By the way, the number one song on the first Earth Day, 1970, Jackson 5. Just to bring it back here on the fastest show in politics, Kaylee Lines is up next on this Earth Day Eve. I'm Joe Matthew. Hour 2 Sound On starts right now. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And with no blue check to show for it either, we're just regular people now. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lyons, who's actually dealt with this in the past. You you did lose the check, right? My check is gone. It's gone. They all kind of went away right in the middle of the day yesterday. Yeah. It's been really funny reading people on Twitter. Everyone has to post about the fact they lost the check. Even every, no, everyone lost their check to say, well, I woke up this morning and I'm like, and then you get the, you know, yep. whatever video of somebody. Some I just meme. couldn't care less. I don't know. The fact of the matter is we're not paying for checks. Yeah. And there are great questions about what happens to, you know, actual corporations, government agencies that could really suffer, never mind media personalities, uh, from imposters uh, on the platform, which was already a problem, Kaylee. 
Yeah, I mean, it's already a problem I've dealt with on other platforms. My Instagram has had like eight imposters in the last wow. couple couple of months, though I don't have a blue check on Instagram, which I think yeah. is the problem. But the uh-huh. thing is, every I had a lot of people ask me in the last 24 hours, well, why don't you just pay for it? Because it doesn't actually make a difference anymore, right? If I have to pay for it, then the verification is not originally not as an intended yeah. because anyone could pay to pretend to be me in right. theory. Just you know, think it just. About that. Or the president or the pope, they lost their checks too. Is it true that uh, Joe Weisenthal never had a check? Yeah. He was one of the rare few that didn't need a check for people to know it was really Joe. But he has like five million followers. Joe, did you tell them not to give you a check? <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm too punk rock for. I was you always, are. I was always too cool for that check. You are no, too I cool don't know. That. You know, it's funny. Like I was on Twitter forever. The first celebrity I think that I ever saw getting a check mark was Shaq because he was like early on and it was like oh is this the real Shaq on Twitter and then he got a check I was like oh my god this is the real and so in my mind I always associated it, it's like unless you're Shaq level celebrity yeah. what are you even doing so right. it's, I, I, I'm like well I'll never be as famous as Shaq so well, I don't want to be uh, would that suggest that they were handing him out you know, like candy, but, there were too many blue well, no, checks but that, no, not a, but like that actually like is the thing which is and I think this is missed and uh, is that they're genuinely useful for the consumers of tweets as opposed to the posters of tweets. And Kaylee, what you said is like exactly right. Like why pay? And it's like it doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. But the real advantage of even having a verification system for a lot of journalists was like, you know, a lot of news has been broken on Twitter. People yeah. said things. You yeah. have really incredible people who are like posting their first thought when something happens is to post something to Twitter, right? Like that's kind of a remarkable thing for any site to have. And then journalists, of course, made a million stories over the last 10 years, like so-and-so said this. <laughs> and now, if you don't really know that it's the person, then like from a consumption standpoint, uh, it's kind of because it sort of degrades the ability to use Twitter as a source of news, which maybe mm-hmm. that's even a good thing. But I doubt that's something that's in the long-term business interests of the company. Well, but on the long-term business interests <clears throat> of yeah. the company, is this like the start of the death of Twitter, which I feel like might be a painful yeah. notion for you, the stalwart who has yeah, three hundred and forty thousand followers. I'm going to be like, you know that meme of the guy standing in the corner. It's like they don't know, blah blah blah. I'm like, they don't know. I used to be popular on Twitter years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be me, like in a year. But I do think, like, yeah. I mean, look, I don't know. Death. It's maybe a dramatic whatever. I'm not going anywhere. It's still like the first. The app. slow wilting. Yeah, it's Twitter. the slow wilting. It's like becomes a slowly worse experience and i do think that like it's simple like it's not you know it, it like i just the way i just see it is like any site ever would kill to have lebron james bill ackman uh you know the president of the presidents of several countries have them on their site and post it right like anyone would like kill for that <laughs> right. and then to think that your business is going to be oh, i'm going to charge you know i'm going to charge the pope eight dollars a month as like give the pope literally making blessings on you know ble- uh, on the site and you're just like oh I'm, it's incredible could you imagine how many other social networks would be desperate for something like that God, and then you and then uh, you're like, oh, I think our business model is going to be let's charge the Pope $8. Let's charge Bill Ackman $8. It's just, I, I mean, maybe, look, Elon is one of the richest people in the world. I'm not, but uh, I'm skeptical that that's like a great way to use the fact that you have all these incredible people on the set. Well, if the story lately is, you know, the loss of advertising, which apparently is very real at Twitter, does this 
help to bring them back? No, and there's the other thing, right? Like, the other thing is that one of the weird things about Twitter is many people are post very specific, detailed things about what they're into there, right? Like, it's not even like... you, And yet, like, I've never in 15 years of being on the site, because I joined the site in March 2008, and which I remember because it was, like, basically when Bear Stearns collapsed. Um, uh, I, you know, like... I've posted so much personal information of some sort on the site, and yet I really don't think I've ever seen a well-targeted ad for me. <laughs> but it's really going to get worse because if it's just like, you know, random accounts like, you know, Sir Doge of Coin and Wall Street Silver <laughs> and all these like random meme accounts that Elon himself enjoys, which is his right, I don't know if like any like brand advertisers like really want to be there the way they want to be on, say, you know, Instagram. Yeah, it's a good point. Now, I'm just kind of scrolling through your Twitter feed. And one thing that you do tweet about quite often is odd lots. Oh, rightly yes, so. our podcast, yes. So I'm going to use this to make a nice, little, a nice seg here. A little that was well pivot done. here. Yeah, well, yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you very thank much. You. Of course, we are 24 hours from everybody having lost their blue check marks. We are also 24 hours from 420. Yes. So, so you had a three part episode of odd lots, which you dubbed. Pot lots. Yeah, it's been in the works for a while. It was really my co-host Tracy who is like kind of her vision, and it sure, actually blame it on Tracy. And, no, <laughs> and it was not a. Um, actually, I think originally we wanted to get it out like last October, and putting together this series ended up being way more daunting than we could have ever imagined. So it's like, okay, we'll put it out on April twentieth. But yes, so you know, as you know, like the New York, or some people may know, New York is like slowly rolling out the adult use yeah. uh, recreational we had team coverage, and it's Bloomberg. incredibly complicated. The, it's just an incredibly, it's so much easier said than done to take what was previously an illicit market and make it mm-hmm. a sort of consumer market. And we explored it from all the angles, and we talked to licensed dealers, we talked to unlicensed dealers, we talked to regulators, we talked to VCs, we talked to retail operators, et cetera, about how it's going. And my big takeaway is that, again, I had a feeling it was a kind of a, a complicated mess to do this. Uh-huh. And my takeaway is like it's 10 times more complicated uh-huh. than even I realized. But it's a, it's a very, I learned a lot from the reporting process of like, of interviewing people over the course of these three episodes you know one of the things that uh, I, I used to live in massachusetts and, yeah. and was there when when they began their experiment yeah and, and one of the biggest concerns was you know how do you squash the black market right. when prices are so high if people don't care about you know yeah. regulated products they're going to go find the cheapest price they can and this is something that most states including colorado haven't seemed to figure out yet joe no they haven't and there's many perverse aspects of it one of which is that you know, because of it's illegal at the federal level, there's no way to legally cross state lines with it. So no licensed dispensary in New York can sell product grown or created in California. Mm -hmm. But the unlicensed places can, they can easily. You rent a private plane, you rent a G4, you pack a few boxes in it. No one, there's no customs going across borders. So no one's gonna, no one, you're not likely to get busted. And so like not only are the unlicensed place they, places uh, less taxed, less uh, regulated, etc. They might have much better or at least much more abundant product because they're mm. not limited to purchasing from something created in state. So it's really tricky and it's particularly tricky due to the uh, fact that it's still fact that it's still 
a Schedule One illegal drug at mm-hmm. the national level. I like how he says rent a G four. Like that's just something. <laughs> no, that, that's that uh, something I heard. I was yeah. like, well, how do they? <laughs> I, I've never done it myself, but I heard. So like, uh, I was like, well, how do they get it across someone? And someone, I don't think it was in the episode. Like, you know, how about the matter like, of cash, though, Joe? We only have yeah. a minute. I'll warn you. The Safe Banking Act that's we right. covered a lot in Washington. It's passed the House over fifteen times, but is apparently never going to see the light of day. I know it's a, it's a, it's another really frustrating aspect for them. And so even the licensed operators have. We, and that's what in the final episode we talked to someone who works at one of the existing licensed operators in Manhattan and just issues of like finding payroll services, payment services. It's really tricky. All right. Well, make sure to turn tune into that three part special Odd Lots episode. That's you can lots. smell it on the subway now. Oh, in oh, New York. Yeah. yeah, you can smell it I mean, everywhere. I feel like I've. Walked around New York, and it, I mean, you can't avoid, but on the yeah. subway, how's it getting yeah. in the it's subway? Not, well, people are smoking on the subway. There is some, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. He is too punk rock for a blue check. Joe, thank you. <laughs> now we all are. Thanks for having me. Now we all are. How about that, Kaylee? Never considered myself punk rock before this, but hey, I'll take it. Absolutely. Joe Weisenthal, of course, uh, the pride of Bloomberg here. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Joe, with every minute that passes, Mm -hmm. we get closer to the X date. Yeah, where is it? When is it? That's a good question. But at some point, in theory, the Treasury could hit the wall and run out of money to pay the bills of the United States. And based on the Treasury's tax receipts, that date could come a lot sooner than maybe we anticipated previously. Yeah, that's a really good point. We were talking about maybe we get till July or August, extraordinary measures. But you're reporting, and and you had a great piece on this on Balance of Power on Bloomberg TV yesterday. Uh, It's looking like it's going to be a lot sooner. It could be the middle of June. Yeah. And we don't even have a meeting set up between the Speaker and the President on this. There is currently... No path. Yeah, it does not seem like we are any closer to getting the House Speaker and the President of the United States to sit down at the negotiating table on this. Of course, Speaker McCarthy has put out a bill. He wants to raise the debt ceiling by one and a half trillion dollars, but he also wants to cut spending. The White House still kind of saying no thank you to that. So who is right? Bloomberg's David Weston posed that question to Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary and Harvard University President Emeritus, as part of his usual Wall Street Week segment. Take a listen to what Mr. Summers said. We should be talking about controlling our spending. We should not be talking about anything in the context of hostage taking and threats that are damaging and counterproductive uh, for everybody. Look, we do need to have a fundamental conversation about the future of government finances in our country. Okay, so... No hostage taking. Perhaps not. Then again, the Republican leadership would tell you we're not holding anything hostage. We're saving the next generation. So this is kind of a tough one. David Weston is with us right now from New York. Uh, David, when Larry Summers weighs in, the markets tend to listen. Uh, But we're no closer to a solution here than we were the last time we spoke a week ago. 
When does the market start to worry? Well, you're seeing a little bit, Joe, already. If you look at the CDSs, uh, the one-year CDSs for U.S. debt, it's at their highest ever on record. Now, it's a pretty thin market. I want to be careful here. But, yeah. but in fact, it's at a record high. And also, there's a kink, actually, in the T-bill market in the mm-hmm. yields, where basically people are saying, yeah, I'm happy to loan you some money for the next 60 days, U.S. government. After that, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure if you're going to pay me back. So you're starting to see it show up just a little bit around the edges. A little bit around the edges, though, likely isn't enough to get the attention of those here in Washington, David, and make them more enticed to perhaps give an inch when it comes to the kind of this stubborn standoff. Do we realistically have to see the markets make up, kick up a little bit more of a storm here on this before we see real action? Is that the sense uh, you're getting from the conversations you're having with leaders? Well, it certainly was what we saw in 2011, isn't it, Kaylee? I mean, we saw a version of that. We walked right up and we had one ratings agency take us down a notch. Uh, you hope that we're not going to get there because that costs real money. It costs real mm-hmm. money in borrowing costs. But I think you heard in what Larry said there, the, the essence of the dilemma. On the one hand, I think everybody, including Kevin McCarthy, Republicans agree, we should not default on our debt. That's catastrophic. On the other hand, you hear everybody say we should do something with the spending. The problem is, are they connected or not connected? And it seems like that's the stumbling block right now. And I know that makes sense in Washington, where you are. I think mm-hmm. maybe across a lot of the country, they're saying, wait a second, I don't understand. You, you all agree <laughs> you got to increase the debt. You mm-hmm. all agree you got to fix spending. Why can't you just do that? You start to wonder who's going to blink here, uh, David, and when the White House comes around on the signals that we have seen uh, would suggest that that happens, that that meeting will happen if House Republicans can pass their budget. And it remains unclear as we go into the weekend if Kevin McCarthy has 218 votes for this plan. If he does not, are we still in nowhere land next week? But it gets to the essence of it, doesn't it, Joe, as a practical matter? Because one of the major factors that you didn't really have in 2011 is the Speaker of the House that took how many votes to get his speakership uh, with a very fractured caucus mm-hmm. and a narrow majority. And uh, no doubt, Kevin McCarthy, first and foremost, wants to keep his job. And it's not clear how he does that. That goes to whether he can actually get this bill through the House. That's far from clear. On the other hand, I'm not sure uh, President Biden's going to pay any attention to him if he can't get the votes. Yeah, it's such a good point. And David, I know you had a much longer conversation with Larry Summers about this and ultimately about the U.S. economy and also the U.S. dollar status as the global reserve currency. And Larry Summers seemed to suggest that if that does happen, which he doesn't necessarily think it will, it will be because the United States is no longer respected and strong in the world. It will be because we've accumulated a set of untenable debts. So is he essentially saying that something like, I don't know, pushing it too close to the limit and getting downgraded or actually going over that default cliff is what ultimately could mean that the dollar is no longer king? It may well be, but I think what he would say is we got a lot bigger problems than that. If we actually go over Mm. the limit and we default on the debt, that's going to be the least of our problems. We're going to have much bigger problems than that. But we were going over with an analysis that you saw this week, Kaylee, uh, that in fact uh, the dollar as a reserve currency lost a fair amount of market share, if I can put it that way, this last year, in part because of some of the sanctions on Russia. Mm. And, And so we were asking him, are we in danger? And he basically said, no, we're not in that bad danger, but we could get in that much danger if we don't get our fiscal house in order. He's very concerned about that. What else are we looking forward to on Wall Street Week tonight at 6 p.m. New York time, David? Well, we got a great treat in Rick Reeder coming from Bla- on from BlackRock. We had a good discussion with him. and he's, he's the best. Well, he is the best. And, you know, he's very concerned at this point. Uh, you know, he's a fixed income guy, although he's also expanded yeah. into all assets right now. Uh, but he's he says maybe the Fed is a little too fixated on inflation. Sure, you got to pay attention to it. But how much damage are you willing to do to the economy? And he's got a lot of ways of looking at it, saying, you know what, they should, okay, maybe hike another 25 and 
May, but then they got a hold Pat, and he thinks they're going to be cutting, not this year, he doesn't expect that this year, but next year. He thinks we're looking at maybe as low as three for the FUD funds rate. Well, and of course, so much of that is going to depend on how much of a contraction we really do see in credit, how much banks pull back on lending. And I know that was something you discussed at length with Brian Moynihan, the Bank of America CEO, yesterday. Exactly. And and Brian admitted, look, uh, our standards are going up on credit. We're not loaning as much. But he said that's exactly what the Fed wanted. How are they going to get inflation under control if you don't do that? He's not overly alarmed. He says the consumer is still very strong. But but, uh, going back for a minute, that is exactly what Rick Reeder is concerned about. He says that if if there's more disruption in the banking system, that is exactly what's going to force the Fed to come down. But I would say Brian does not see that on the horizon yet. Boy. Yet being the operative word there, yeah, Joe. How right. true. These things can change pretty quickly. David, it's always our pleasure to have you. Let's do this again next week. And we'll be watching tonight, of course, and listening. You can always listen, I should tell our radio audience, to Wall Street Week at 6 p.m. Wall Street time as we sit here in Washington. David Weston with us from New York, Kaylee, and just question marks yep. all over this story. We just got through another week without really a sense of where we are and where we're going. Yeah, hopefully we'll have a firmer sense of ultimately where we need to get to mm-hmm. at the last possible date. That X date should become more clear once we get the fuller picture of what and the April tax receipts look like. And maybe that'll kickstart that'll light a fire. something. That'll theory. be an inflection point, just like the vote next Wednesday, if that bill gets to the floor. And we'll find out together with coverage from Washington every day here on Bloomberg Sound On. If you want to know what's happening inside the Beltway, this is your opportunity here live on the radio or in the podcasts. With Kaylee Lines, I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.